We're going to get back, like I told you, into the book of Esther again, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 5. So if you want to turn there, uh, you can do that now. And we saw um, where we left her. She had just asked for uh, Mordecai to gather the people of God, and she and her maids would be fasting, and she knew she had this big task ahead of her to go in and hopefully gain favor with the king so she can make her entreaty to him to save her people. So in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to read just through verse 8 for now. Uh, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Wow. Wow. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So the first thing I just want to say is, well, obviously things are turning around and it's looking better, just the fact that she got an audience with the king, right? That was, that was huge right there, because she had said in the previous chapter, listen, if, if he's not in the mood, it was like off with your head, you know? You, you weren't allowed to even approach him without being bidden. So this was definitely a courageous step. And, and God has given her favor. He just looks up. He sees her. His heart is warm towards her. He invites her to come. And he even has such a heart of um, favor and generosity towards her at this point that he says, I'll even give you up to half the kingdom. And, um, and that's, so that's great. The, the story's turning. But, you know, I, I wanted to stop and just say, isn't it just such a blessing? Or do we sometimes, I think, Lord, don't ever let us take it for granted the favor and the access we have to the king's throne room, you know, that we get to come into the presence of Almighty God. And in Hebrews 4.16, in the Amplified Version, I love the way it talks about that. It says, let, therefore, let us, with the privilege that we have, approach the throne of grace, the throne of God's gracious favor, with confidence and without fear. See, she came with fear, didn't she, and trepidation. But we can come without fear and confidence that we might receive mercy for our failures and finding his amazing grace to help in the time of need. It will always be, an appro- this is the Amplified, an appropriate blessing coming just at the right moment. And that is the access we have into God's timing. Now, I, I mentioned to Alicia, and maybe I will just share it real quickly here. I just, this is kind of a side note. But, you know, it's interesting how, no matter how many times you can read a text of Scripture, isn't it interesting how God will just highlight something and go, goodness, I never really noticed that before. And so, as I was just studying, going over my notes again, I'm like, I am like kind of 
taken aback by how many times it talks about if it pleases you, King, if it pleases you, even the way his advisors talk to him, if it's okay with you, if it pleases you, if it pleases you, if it's your pleasure, if it's your pleasure. And, and I think, my, you know, you just see that this man was in this position, and you've seen this acted out probably in movies where there's this royal and everybody has to tiptoe, right, around him, oh, make sure he's pleased, you know? And I just thought, you know, it, it, you know, it could just be my thing. So if this doesn't apply to you, you know, you're just in on my little journey here. But uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, I wonder, am I that person, you know, that that can be so easily like, is she pleased? Is she okay? Because sometimes I think as women, you know, there's a there's a little saying that, and they put on little signs and it says, if it, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And uh, and that's even, you know, it, it, it's kind of true. Unfortunately, I just saw one recently says, isn't it more like happy spouse, happy house? Like, like let both spouses be happy, right? It's not just about the woman being happy, you know? But sometimes I think, because we can be persnickety like that and a little hard to please, you know? A lot of times when we do marriage counseling, you know, the woman's like, and I want him to do this and this and this, and I want him to be better with the devotions with the kids, and he has to manage the money better, and he has to make more money, by the way. And, um, you know, <laughs> and he does, you know, I always got to tell him the chores, and I got to remind him to do the gutters, and da 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 And then, like, what do you want? I just want her to be happy. That's what husbands often say. I just want her to be happy. I just want to come in, and she's happy, contented, right? You know, I have one or two people in my life that are sometimes very, very hard to please, um, you know, in relationship. And, and, and aren't they difficult people to be with? You know, do you have any of those? I mean, where it's like you got to tiptoe around them a bit and you're just afraid you might set them off and, and, and you got to keep them happy, you know, keep them pleased, you know. And, that, and we do it because we want to love on people and we have the agape love of God and we want to walk in the spirit and we want to be patient and long-suffering and everything. But let me tell you, it's exhausting at times, you know? And I certainly don't want to be that person to my loved ones, to the people I work with, right? God doesn't want us to be like that, petulant, like this king, where everybody had to worry if he was pleased. We should be worrying about pleasing the Lord, not always getting pleased ourselves, you know? Saying no to self, right? So maybe that's just something we tuck into our pocketbook and think about, <laughs> you know? I know I do. I need to think about that a little bit. But anyway, she, she invites him to this banquet, and, and they're having a grand old time, and he's like, all right, come on, bring it on. You have a request. You obviously have something on your mind, Esther. And she's like, you know what I want? I just want you to come back tomorrow and bring Haman again. And you think, wow, isn't that interesting? Because there, you would think it was such an, a point of urgency. This threat is imminent. But I love her wisdom. I love that she's being led by the Holy Spirit. God's not in a hurry, girls. Would you say amen to that? Because honestly, right, isn't he not? We're in a hurry. We want it now, 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 now. We want our answer sent. He's not in a hurry. God's timing is perfect. He's never late. He's never early. His timing is perfect. So being led by the Holy Spirit in this way is something that we need to take, take a look at and be um, in Proverbs 16, it says, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So we may have something prepared. She had something kind of prepared. But she waited on God, and she decided not to ask it that night for whatever reason. She probably wasn't even sure why. But sometimes you get that check in your spirit like, this isn't the time. Let's be sensitive to that in our lives. Timing is everything. It really is. And the Holy Spirit is always speaking. We're just not always listening. 
because we're so caught up in our own agenda that we're not always listening for his timing. And we can, and there's wisdom in his timing. So thank God she waited. She waited. And Proverbs 69 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we want to be those directed by God because um, here she she waits, they go off, Haman's all like, yeah, I'm like the best, you know, guest of honor, I've had dinner with the king and queen, uh, you know, fast track to success here, but on his way home, he sees Mordecai again, again, Mordecai doesn't bow to him, and it just, talk about robbing his joy, his happiness, he's just like, oh, he gets home, he's so upset, his wives, his friends, another guy who has to be pleased, they're like, oh, just build a gallows, you know, get him hung, you know, soon, and this and that, so he does that, now let's turn to 6, verses 1 to 3, what happens that night. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. So that night, because she waited, he had a sleepless night. Why? Maybe he ate too much, who knows? But he was awake and he couldn't sleep. So he had someone come, come read something like boring. You know, like, come read the Chronicles, you know, like that. You know what I mean? It's like, come read the history of, you know, the United States. You know, it's that kind of thing. Like, you know, that'll put me right to sleep, you know. So it was that kind of thing. And so he has this person come in here, and then he, he kind of listens. He's like, wait, whoa, whoa, I don't remember that. What, what happened? Did we ever do anything for that guy, Mordecai? You mean he, he, he foiled an assassination plot? Like, do we give him some honor or something? You know? Oh, come on now. Is that a coincidence? But we know there's no coincidences, right? There's only God orchestrating things. I love what someone wrote. He said, uh, coincidences are a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. I love that. And one commentator said, this lady, Karen Jobes, I like this too. You know, this is why we need to ponder the miraculous quality of the ordinary. Ponder the miraculous quality of the ordinary. If we truly believe in our confidence and our assurances that God is in what? Just the big stuff in my life or all the little details? So sometimes, you know, I've had friends that have encouraged me in this, and I'm so grateful for them speaking into my life. You're wakeful at night. Maybe God has you up for a purpose. Maybe you're supposed to pray. Maybe you're supposed to go into your Bible and look up a verse for someone you know is hurting. Ask the Holy Spirit. So, see, what we do is we fight it, don't we? Like, I gotta sleep, I gotta sleep, like, oh, I gotta be up, I gotta do this, da, 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 and we, and, and you know what? And they say, Lord, I'm awake, why? Lord, why? Did you wake me for a purpose, God? Is there someone I need to be praying for that's struggling in sin right this minute? Maybe my kid away at college is having a moment where they can choose to be good <laughs> or naughty. You know what I mean? What is it that you're waking me for, Lord? And be aware of that. That's a miraculous moment. There's times we get delayed. There's times things don't go our way. We don't get to go to that thing we thought we were going to be able to go to. What does God have for us there? He's always in the details, the miraculous quality of the ordinary, even just being with your kids day to day. Isn't that the way the Jewish people raised in the walking, in the setting, in the eating, right? Just tell them about the Lord. The ordinary moments are filled with miracles. So we get to chapter 7. 
And we, oh, sorry, I don't want to leave it there. So Haman just happens to be there. And so he brings Haman in and goes, hey, uh, Haman, what should I do for someone who's been like really great? Like, I mean, I really want to honor this person. He doesn't mention the name. Haman, of course, being a um, narcissist, thinks, oh, he's talking about me. This is great. So I'm going, oh, you should do this. You should parade him around town. You should give him your ring. You should give him your coat. You should go, you know. And he goes, oh, great. That's a great idea. You know what? Go do that for Mordecai. Could you imagine? I mean, you want to talk about like, oh, poetic justice at its best. I mean, this guy has been like, building a gallows and now he has to take his arch enemy and and like give him this royal parade i mean is god good you know you don't have to worry about vengeance is my say at the lord i will repay he does it perfectly don't you worry about getting you know thinking i'm gonna get back no 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 you let god do it his way and so god has intervened in this miraculous way and Later on, when Mordecai comes back in chapter 7 into the banquet for that second night after he's had this humiliating day of parading Mordecai through the streets, he comes in and now is her moment. She's going to tell her king, this her husband, would you save our people? In chapter 7, he says, finally, what is it that is your pleasure? And in verse Three, she says, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people, and I and me also to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I, wouldn't have, I would have held my tongue although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahuzerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got so angry, he walked out, rose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch. He was making just a mess of himself, pleading with Esther. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? And the word left the king's mouth. They covered, they just came in and covered his face for the gallows. That was it. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, look at those gallows he built, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. And it says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. So she comes, Queen clean. She tells how she's of Jewish descent. You know, she had not before because of Mordecai's advice. And she comes to him and she tells him and, and he, he has given her the house of Haman. But now the problem is when these edicts went forth and they were sealed with the signet ring as it had been for this idea that they were going to kill all the Jews, that can't just be uh, overturned. It was just the way the laws worked there. So what he did was he gave the, their signet ring and he said, write a new edict. This sort of kind of cancels, cancels out the first one. So what they did was um, they sent letters to all the kingdom now, again, to all the people again, which they had received those first letters about killing the Jews on a certain date. Now they were allowed to send letters in the king's name, 
permitting the Jews who were in every city to gather together, it's in verse 11, and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. So anybody would come against them and their children or try to plunder them in any way, they could raise up and, and fight for their lives and fight against them. So that was the new edict, and that's great. But it's really interesting to me that though Haman is defeated, he's gone. He's out of the picture. But there is still a battle to be won, right? See, it's not that God saved them from the battle. He saved them in the battle, right? He gave them joy and victory in the battle. Because before they even fought it, they knew they were going to have to fight. They would have to come back against these enemies that would come against them. In verse 16, it says, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. They immediately started to rejoice, knowing that they still would have the battle ahead of them. They still had joy. They still rejoiced in victory, even though the battle was still to come, even though it wasn't quite done, right? And isn't that so true of us? See, Satan is a defeated foe. But we're still in a battle here on earth, aren't we? We're still in a battle, a spiritual battle to maintain so many things, one of which is our joy. One of which is our joy, our testimony, our witness, uh, to, to say no to sin. We have all kinds of temptations, right? But one of them is to maintain joy, to live a joyful life. Um, I don't know, are you guys uh, fans, you can show me by your hand, of the Narnia series? Okay, the C.S. Lewis, the Narnia, if you, yeah, I'm sure, especially homeschoolers, we love Narnia, yeah, right? I do, I love C.S. Lewis, I love his writings, <clears throat> but, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, such a powerful um, allegory, so to speak, of our, of our, uh, what Christ has done, Aslan, the, the lion being the, the, the prototype of Jesus coming back and defeating the white witch, and He's on the stone table, and, and Susan and um, Lucy have seen it, saw, saw him killed, and, and, and they, because the white witch has said, any soul who has you know, given treachery is mine. And so they saw him die, and then he comes back to life. And so he, he's explaining to them, because they're saying, but what about the, the, the deep magic that the witch talked about, how, how an innocent substitute? And what he says, he says, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawn, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Such an exciting scene in the book, and there's been movies made of it. And that definitely, in this, and that's like our salvation, right? Jesus conquered sin and death at the cross, at the resurrection, and death has no more sting. But we're still in this world, and there was still a battle. They had to go, and they had to completely slay that witch after this scene in the book. And at the end of the book, it says, and now, as you see, the story is nearly, but not quite, at an end. These two kings and two queens of Narnia 
governed Narnia well, and long and happy was their reign. At first, much of their time was set, spent in seeking out the remnants of the White Witch's army and destroying them. And indeed, for a long time, there would be news of evil things lurking in the wilder parts of the forest, a haunting there, a killing there, a glimpse of a werewolf once a month, and a rumor of a hag the next. But in the end, all that foul brood was stamped out, and they themselves grew and changed as the years passed over them. Isn't this so true of us, right? Still dealing with the battle, the spiritual battles we go through. And I just love like how each of them, Peter became a great warrior. Susan grew in gentleness and grace, and she was known as Susan the Gentle. Edmund was one of the other characters. He was a quieter man, but he grew in great counsel and judgment, and he was known as Edmund the Just. And Lucy was happy and golden-haired, and all princes in those parts wanted her to be their queen, and they called her Queen Lucy the Valiant. And so they lived in great joy. I love that, how the, that book ends, because they're still in that land, warring against the forces of evil, but they're they're growing and they're becoming more valiant as we want to be more valiant and we want to be more gentle and we want to have wisdom and justice, right? And be warriors. And so girls, when we cultivate joy in our life and we've tested this soil and we removed all the obstacles and we've improved the soil, we talked about that last time, and we've planted those seeds of joy and we're growing in joy and joy is being cultivated in our life, any garden worth having, you need to enclose it. You need to guard it. It has to be guarded now. You put up a fence. I know I need to do that. You know, you put up hedging, you put up the mulch, you weed it, you keep an eye on it, right? You, you gotta weed out those things that try to come back. And this is where we are in the spiritual battle to maintain joy, but we've been given armor. So I, just to close, I just want us to go through the armor of God in Ephesians 6, and we're gonna go through it quickly. But I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and we're just gonna go ahead and read it through because we've been given armor for this battle. See, it says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, it says, finally, my sisters, be strong. That means empowered, enabled, and strengthened in the Lord. You know, I looked up that word in. I know it's what you always, I always tend to look up the bigger words, right? <laughs> like, okay, what does it mean? You know, strong. Um, what it, in is a fixed position, right? So we know that something's in something else. It's a fixed position. But in the, in the um, Greek, it also means resting and abiding, resting and abiding in the Lord. This is how we're strengthened. And get this, that word Lord there is curios, which means the supreme authority and controller over all. Amen. Isn't that what we've been saying? He is sovereign and the controller over all. And get this, this made me do a little dance of joy in my house when I was studying this. It's the same title that that father who had the demon-possessed child said, Lord, curious, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the title he used towards Jesus. I love that. He's the, he's in, he's in the supreme authority and controller over all. And it says, be strengthened in him, be resting in him, in the power, the vigor, the might, the strength of his forces, his ability, his might, 
his omnipotence, his endless resources. We don't have it. He does. Praise God. We rest in what he has. It says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, I've always thought about putting on clothes, right? We've put on that garment, put on that armor, right? Got the armor, pick it up, put on. And it does mean that, obviously, but I never knew this. The, the flavor of that verb means to sink into a garment. I just love that. Sink into a garment. I don't know about you, but I spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about what I'm putting on. <laughs> You know, does that go with that? I'm not sure if that goes with that. Oh, those shoes look all right with that. You know, you got to spend a lot of time looking, you know, through the stuff and figuring out what goes with what. But here, it's all been laid out for you. And all you have to do is sink into it. <laughs> it would like that, right? A personal dresser or something, right? Your outfit, your armor has been laid out for you. Just step into it. Step into it the whole armor of God, so that you may be able, that it, I love this, that you, it would even be possible for you to stand or for me to stand. Because without it, you're not going to be able to. That's just the given. We need to be made possible to stand, to withstand, to be victorious, that word stand means, to be victorious against the wiles, the travesty, the one who lies in wait to stop, steal our joy. He has an agenda. He has an agenda to rob, kill, and destroy. And he's the devil. And he is, that word there is Satan. It's the false accuser of the brethren. It's the slanderer. So this is how he'll come at us with certain types of lies. He will lie to you that God still sees you as you, you are failing, you know, you're this, you're that, you fail God, you, he's the accuser of the brethren, but then he also slanders God to you. Hasn't he been doing that since the garden? Oh, God just doesn't want you. That's what he said to Eve, oh, God doesn't want, God doesn't want, God doesn't want good for you. He's withholding something from you. See, he slanders God, and that's why it's so important for us to know the word of God to know what is true about God, so we know the counterfeit from the lie, right? We don't know. We'll, we'll be taken in. He wants to slander. You don't let him. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I always love what my husband says, and I think it all the time. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your ex-spouse. Your enemy is not your boss or the people you work with or your kids. Sometimes they can feel a little bit like the enemy. Um, <laughs> Depending on what their age, uh, uh, Karen Pulley calls them little flesh crucifiers or something like that. That's cute. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not your neighbor, it's not your whatever. The enemy is the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Let's be clear on who's behind it, okay? He's the one coming at you. So it's, it, so it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness. And again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I love looking up the, the, the meanings of these uh, words, and it's very easy to do. I, I'm sure you're, you're, uh, you've been told this before, but there's lots of great apps and everything. You can look into the Greek and Hebrew. You don't have to know them by yourself. But this word darkness, I thought was really interesting. It's shadiness. That made me kind of chuckle. I was like, oh, isn't that so true? Because we think we're going to be able to pick it out because it's light or it's dark, but it's shady. You know what I mean? Like when someone's shady, it's like, and Satan's shady because he'll put a little truth in there, right? He'll wrap up a lie and a little bit of truth or, you know, or take a little bit of truth and wrap it in a lie. Be careful of shadiness. Be careful of someone trying to sell you a lie. And I say that girls, some young girls here, don't be with those shady guys. I go to church. Right? Be careful. 
Know the, know, know the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's these shady darkness, these rulers of shadiness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up, receive it. Just take it, receive it. It's been given to you. You don't have to make up the armor. You don't have to invent the armor. Just take the armor that you may be able and make it possible to withstand, oppose, resist in the evil day. That word evil means calamitous, crisis day, the grievous days, the days that are difficult, the days of malice, the wicked days. And that word day does not only just mean a 24-hour period. It could be a period of time. But God is going to give you that armor to equip you so you can stand and be victorious in the midst of that. And that word stand means, like, it's kind of like, for me, a little anticlimactic to say, so I'll be able to stand. All right. That doesn't sound so good. But you know what? When you get into the, what that really means, that victorious stance, for a sports analogy, it's like after the game, right, where does the, the, the defeated team go? Off to the dugout, right? Or off to the locker room. And who's standing on the field? The winners. And they're high-fiving. And they're excited. And they're being celebrated. I had a laugh. Did anybody see? Um, you guys watch the US Open, maybe? I don't know. But I was laughing. But I was like, except if you're Serena Williams. Because <laughs> she, I don't know if anybody's a tennis person. But she lost. And they were interviewing her. And I felt so bad for the girl that actually won the US Open. Because I get it. Like, we love Serena, right? Like, great career. But it's like, come on now. The girl won. Like, interview her. You know, she's sitting on the side like, mm, you know. <laughs> they've got her. <laughs> and she was really gracious. She's like, I got to get out of here go interview her but you know um but anyway usually right it's the victor the victors take the field and they stand on the field that's us that's us in christ with our armor on stand abide continue have your waist girded with truth we can't say it enough are we walking in truth are we walking in truth are we believing the truth reading the truth walking in truth having integrity in our life are we walking in falsehood and lies what's holding us together mentioned, you know, is it social media mores or is it the word of God? What's holding us together? We have that breastplate of righteousness. That, that breastplate is the righteousness of Christ that's given to us, that we have the righteousness of Christ imparted to us, and it is to protect our emotions, the heart. Think about that, your chest, your heart, the seat of your emotions. And it's not, yes, it is absolutely the righteousness of Christ that we're given, but it's also walking in righteousness. There's a protection in that. When we walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, there's protection in that. God says things for a good reason, because he cares about us. He wants us to walk in righteousness. Girls, when we don't, we get wrecked. We get wrecked. Our emotions get messed up. We get hurt. We suffer loss. God wants us walking righteously before him. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We talked about preaching the gospel to ourselves, preaching the gospel to others. And above all, taking that shield of faith, which is our conviction, right? We talked about faith. What do we believe? Do we believe or do we have unbelief? The truthfulness of who God is, wherewith you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. He's like, God's not for you. That's a lie. He absolutely is for me. And you have that. You know it. Your faith, he is for me. He is not against me. We are getting through this. I am victorious in Christ Jesus. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. The story's not done on my family. He does not have the final say about where my kids are going. We need to stand and believe God's word. That if he asks anything in his name, he hears us. 
We need to take that helmet of salvation, protect your thoughts. It's a minefield for us women. One little comment can get us obsessing. We have to take every thought, to, thought captive to Christ. Remember who you are in him. You're his. He loves you. You're precious to God. It doesn't matter what this world says. Who are you in Christ? Remember what he saved you from. Put that helmet on. I had a friend who dealt with terrible postpartum depression. She had a lot of kids, too. She kept having them. She had, like, eight boys. Eight boys. It was like you go to her house, it was just like sea of sneakers. It was like, it was unbelievable. And sports equipment. It was, it was just amazing. And she's the, she actually is a very joyous person. She loves the Lord. So filled. She, her husband's a little tough. But she's wonderful. She's just so fun. And, and thank God, because she just, and she's super feminine. She had like lace curtains on her dining room. She's like, I got to hold my femininity here. I'm being, you know. She was just so cute. And, but she did deal with postpartum depression. It's a real, you know, it's a real thing. Hormonally, it was really tough for her. And so she knew, she kind of knew it. They knew this is her MO. And, you know, so she knew it. But she, she said, Liz, I get up every morning. I put the armor of God on. I put the armor of God, I talk it out with God. I said, God, I'm putting on my helmets of salvation. I'm putting she, she was just put on the armor of God. And, and she got through it and she, oh, she raised this wonderful family. God bless her. But we have that helmet of salvation. We have that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that is an offensive weapon. That's the only offense. Everything else is more a defensive weapon. That's our offensive weapon, the word of God. When Jesus was tempted, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. We come with the word of God. And then it says praying. And that word praying means supplication and worship, which we said is important, right, for the journey of joy. So it's not, it is supplication in that word, but it also includes worship. Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being filled with the spirit, and being watchful, keeping awake to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. You know, and there's community. You know, girls, um, this armor, it, it just echoes a lot of what we talked about session two. We're just seeing faith in there. We're seeing worship in there. We're seeing thanks in there. We're seeing truth in there, right? We, so much of what we talked about. And then this other little thing here, I thought it's very interesting, is part of our armor is praying for others. Isn't that interesting? Part of our armor to walk in victory is to have a heart that prays for others. And I think, you know, it took me to that little acrostic that you all know, and I, I've known it for years too, but what is joy? Jesus, others, yourself, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. First of all, Jesus, joy is a sign that the soul has found its object. Is Jesus the object of your affections, of your highest affections, the king of your heart, the love of your life? If he is, joy follows. Is he first? Do you want to please him before all others? Next is others. You know, we don't have time today, but that's a great study. Look up in a concordance. All the times it says one another or two another or four others or bear with one another. There are so many one another's in the Bible. We're supposed to be people that care about one another. It gets us out of ourself. It gets us out of our head. The Bible tells me that part of my armor is the honor and the privilege and the exhortation that I'd be interceding for others. You mean inter intercessors? They are joyful people. I have a sweet lady, Carmen. Is it Carmen? I think it is. Ellie's grandma. She asked to pray for me. She just lost her husband. She, she wants to put me on her prayer list. I'm so honored that she would do that. 
She has the joy of the Lord. She's a settled assurance in God. And she has a heart to pray for other people. It's a gift, girls. Ask God to develop it in us, to be prayer warriors, to care about the care and the feelings of others. And then finally, yourself. And the world has gotten it so backwards. The more preoccupied we get with self, you know, the funny thing, we take the picture for Instagram and Facebook, and everybody looks. And who do you look at first? Yeah. Oh, that's not good of me. I got my eyes closed. Everyone else could look absolutely beautiful in that picture. You're like, delete. <laughs> And <laughs> I was at a wedding recently, so I was taking a picture of myself and two girlfriends that I went to high school with, you know? And the guy was trying to take a picture, we kept saying, put it higher, put it higher. Because, right, because you're supposed to look thinner, right? When it's coming up like this angle, like... <laughs> this poor guy was, like, reaching for the stars, trying to... <laughs> I'm showing you the three, you know, middle-aged women. Put it higher, put it higher. Um, but, you know, that's us, you know, we're so focused on self. And it's made, you know, unfortunately, you know, suicides on the rise, um, misery, depression, anxiety, everybody's on medication, and so sad, young girls, beautiful girls, filled with anxiety, and, 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 and it's too much pre preoccupation with self, self-care, you know, my rights, my agenda. It's, it's, you know, we have to get away from it. If we look at the world, you'll, this is Corey Ten Boom, you may have heard it before, but it's a good one. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. <laughs> if you look at God, you'll be at rest. You'll have the joy of the Lord. So ladies, let's finish there. We need to fight for joy. Maintain the line, right? Isn't that what um, Army say? We've got to maintain the line. Maintain that line. Keep that soil cultivated. Weed it out of the things to steal your joy and nourish that soil in the word, in worship, in fellowship, in praise and thanks. This world needs us. It needs genuine, joy-filled Christians. People are sick of phonies and they're sick of hypocrites and they're sick of judgmental people that just yell and rail at the evil but don't do anything to really shine the love of Jesus around. They need to see Jesus in us, <clears throat> the loving, merciful, gracious God that won our hearts to himself who pursued us, who put up with us. Do you ever think back at how much you gave Jesus a hard time? Maybe even today. <laughs> you know what I mean? We do. And he's so kind. He's so good. He's gracious. He's corrective. He is. He's corrective. He tells us the truth. But he does it with such a way that just makes us our heart melt and want to just live for him. Going to the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is this the Jesus that we're reflecting to our families? Is this the joy that we carry, a confident assurance in a God that's working all things together for good and for his glory? This is the light and the love of God that will impact a dark world. In Acts 2, we had a group of disciples up in an upper room, and they were frightened, I'm sure. Their beloved savior, their rabbi, their teacher had and crucified. Yes, they had entered into the joy of the resurrection, but he's gone again. Kind of like Aslan that time. They were, now what? Right? Now what? How, what are we going to do? And in Acts 2, as they sought God, it says that they were filled. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to 
speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome even, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Can you imagine that the United Nations here, all hearing them speaking in our own tongues. And what were they speaking? The wonderful works of God. Wow, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, how could this mean? What could this mean? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were given this wonderful gift where people heard them in every tongue and every language. And it was miraculous and beautiful. And I do believe in, in tongues for today. But that's not what I really want to talk about. I want to talk about the fact that they were speaking of the wondrous works of God. And they, in that little band of believers, turned their known world upside down within a generation that that little group who had been frightened before, who had been upstairs cowering before, not quite sure what to do, despondent, confused, they were set on fire by the Holy Spirit and they started to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit with their armor on. They did exploits for God. Would it be that we would be those people, right? Those Queen Esthers that would change the course of a generation. You know, my husband and I, um, you know, we, we love the stories of California. We love the Calvary Chapel story and the revival and the Jesus, you know, movement and all that. It's wonderful. Thank God for it. But, you know, aren't you, don't you want to see that today? And aren't we seeing it? I do think we are on the, on the verge of a revival, but it starts in the hearts of our hearts, right? To be revived, to be revived in joy, to be filled in, 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 in the Holy Spirit so that we might be a light in this generation, to save this generation and I pray that you're with me because I want to. I want to. I want to redeem the time. I feel. I always say to the girls at my church, I'm like, don't you hear them at the door? You know, when you're home, you're like, someone at the door. I feel that way. I feel like Jesus right at the door. So let's be ready, right, girls? Being busy for Him, living for Him, living lit on fire by the Holy Spirit, living a life of joy, of light, and love in the Lord, and being witness for Him. Amen. 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 Lord, we thank you, God, that you have made such things available to us. You've given us access to your throne. And then you've put the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus that raised him from the dead, you have told, is now in us and quickening our mortal bodies. Oh, Lord, that we would walk in the power of that that we would walk as women of courage and faith, Lord, women of gratitude, Lord, women of prayer, women who know their Bibles, who know the truth about their God, that speak the exploits of God. I'm, I'm just hearing, even in the mall here, there were so many different languages being spoken, Lord. I, we heard German, we heard different things. What, what, what might happen if someone gets saved here in Miami and goes into their country to bring this message back, Lord? We don't realize the impact that our simple witness could be, Lord, impacting a generation of people. Lord, give us eyes to see, Lord, and use us, Lord, 
Help us to get out of our own way, like Alicia said. Sometimes we're the one just most in our own way, that's self, God. Lord, just let us bow to your kingship, Lord, and just be led of you in all things. And we just thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.